Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Michelle Ford, the Director of the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney, Australia, and co-host of the channel. Today I'm talking to Professor Nick Enfield from the Department of Linguistics at the University of Sydney. Nick is the author of The Languages of Mainland Southeast Asia, published by Cambridge University Press in 2021. The Languages of Mainland Southeast Asia contextualizes a detailed mapping of the languages of the region within their history, politics, and cultures. Welcome, Nick. Thanks for having me. Nick, I'd like to start by asking you, what brought you to write this book? Well, it's been a long time coming, I have to say. Um, This kind of a book is really a reference book in a way, and it's really been forming in my mind for a very long time. So as a student, when I was at the ANU uh, in the early 90s, I used to go into the co-op bookshop and sort of look at the books and imagine what it would be like to be a, a book author. And I was kind of, they would be academic at the time. And one of my Professors Bob Dixon had published a book on the languages of Australia in what was known as the Green Series in Cambridge University Press. And this is a series of books that cover different areas of the world and all the languages that are spoken there. And I was already interested in Southeast Asian languages. And I saw on the inside jacket of that book that there was a book forthcoming on the languages of Southeast Asia. And I was so excited that this book was coming out. Well, it's a very long story, but the person who was contracted to write that book a long time ago never actually produced it. And for years and years, I I dreamt of it. I got into the languages of the area. I began to understand them more and more deeply. And over time, I got into a relationship with Cambridge University Press, and one thing led to another, and I, I wrote this book. And essentially... It's like a dream of mine to have written it, but more for the purposes of my readers. There isn't really a go-to book on the languages of this area, and because this series really provided a venue, for me it was a real opportunity to kind of fill that gap. And, yeah, that's why I wrote the book. So I'm extremely proud of it, Um, and it's taken me well over 20 years to do. That's quite a long time for a book in the making. Um, Nick, I'll get right into my questions. As you note in your preamble, mainland Southeast Asia is one of the most complex cultural and linguistic areas in the world. You identify five main language groups, accounting for some 550 distinct languages in the region. Can you explain to our listeners what these five main language groups are and how they map onto mainland Southeast Asia's contemporary cultural and geopolitical landscape? Sure. Well, well, to do that in detail would, of course, be a very long and involved discussion, but to sort of take it at the most broad stroke level, there are five language families of the area. The one that accounts for most of the languages in the kind of core of mainland Southeast Asia is the Austroasiatic language family. And that's the family that includes languages like Khmer and Cambodia and Vietnamese and Vietnam. 
and many, many minority languages. So the Austroasiatic language family is generally considered to be the family that was of the current languages that's kind of been in the area for the longest time of, of all of the languages spoken now. So other language families have come into the area over time. So there's the Sino-Tibetan language family, which is a very big family that includes the Chinese languages and many languages spoken outside of the mainland of Southeast Asia. There's the Dai Gadai language family, so that includes languages like Thai and Lao, and those are languages that have come into the area also from the north, from China, in the last one or 2,000 years. There are a small number of Austronesian languages, so of course those are the languages of Ireland, Southeast Asia, and the Pacific. Uh, there are a small number of those languages represented on the mainland of Southeast Asia, and uh, then lastly, there's the Hmong Mian language family. Uh, so the Hmong language is probably the best known of that family. And again, these are languages that have come into the mainland Southeast Asia area with migrations relatively recently. So those are languages that have originated in China and they're currently spoken in the north of uh, Vietnam and Laos and Thailand and parts of Myanmar. So those are your five families. So you mentioned the Austronesian languages there, and when I was reading the opening chapters of your book, it struck me that you included Malaysia in your definition of mainland Southeast Asia. And a lot of people would think politically, but also linguistically, that it's more closely tied to the island Southeast Asian states. Can you let it tell us a bit about what informed your thinking on this and how Malaysia contributes to your linguistic map of the region and why you drew the line where you drew it? Well, to clarify, I do include peninsular Malaysia. And I try to be careful to specify that I don't mean Malaysia as an entire country. So I'm talking about the peninsular part of Malaysia that's connected by land to the rest of the mainland. So from that point of view, there's just a sheer physical connection of peninsular Malaysia to Thailand and Myanmar, and then by extension to the other countries of the area. But also linguistically, you know, I think this is a theme in the book as well, is that oftentimes when we think about these countries, we first think of the languages that are dominant, that are most known, so Malay in Malaysia. But in all of the countries of this area, there are many other languages spoken. And in the case of Peninsular Malaysia, that includes the Aslian languages. So these are spoken by minority groups of the uplands, the central and northern parts of the country. So these are Austroasiatic languages that are related to the languages that run all the way up and across the area. So from that point of view, it's quite natural that peninsular Malaysia should be included in, in mainland Southeast Asia. Speaking of the uplands, most people who have anything more than a passing interest in mainland Southeast Asia would be familiar with the term Zomia, which has come to describe the upland people of mainland Southeast Asia, who sit at the very margins of various nation states, both geographically and politically. Can you explain how the concept of Zomia helps us to understand the region's linguistic profile? I find the Zomia concept to be quite useful in that it inverts the kind of figure ground relationship between the different peoples of the area. So what I mean is that you have a passing knowledge of mainland Southeast Asia if you visit one of the countries, Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, etc. You know, you have this idea that 
mainly this is a place where people speak languages like Thai and Lao and Khmer and Vietnamese. And then there are these kind of minority groups that are off in the hills. Uh, sometimes they're called hill tribes. Sometimes they're called indigenous minority groups. And, you know, they're really sort of regarded as being at the margins and in discussions of the area or in people's experience of the area, they're the least known. Now, the Zomir idea is one that makes certain claims. So James Scott is the person who's kind of popularized the concept and he made arguments about the people of the uplands being in those areas because they preferred to stay away from government control. So there's a certain kind of political claim about Zomia. From a linguistic point of view, that's, that's relevant. But from the point of view of really the reader and the person who's trying to come to grips with what mainland Southeast Asia is like linguistically, it's really important that you reverse that kind of foreground background relationship so if you just look at the dominant languages of mainland southeast asia they really number a small minority of the languages so as you pointed out earlier on there are hundreds of languages spoken in mainland southeast asia but there's only a handful of nation states so if you're interested in languages in the plural and understanding linguistic diversity almost all of the languages that you're interested in are spoken by so-called Zomian people. So I think just putting those people in the foreground is a really important move in terms of understanding the diversity of language in this part of the world. Another thing you point to in Chapter 1 is the relative lack of linguistic diversity in the region's lowlands. What factors explain this pattern? Well, there are a few factors. One is a relatively recent force really very recent, in fact, in terms of the history of the area, and that is modern education systems and modern systems of media and mass communications. So Thailand is a good example where you've had a very strong education system, a very strong kind of centralized media system. And when I say strong, I mean effective at promoting a standard form of the language. So really quite like what we see in, in Europe, people of the older generations show a really quite strong degree of dialect variation. But when you look at people of younger generations, a lot of the dialect variation is is gone. And that same sort of process also takes place with respect to not just dialect differences, but also language differences. And it's in the lowlands where the biggest populations live. It's in the lowlands where transport and the telecommunications and the education system is stronger. So those have really those forces have really exerted a kind of a leveling on people's language practices and that's created much less diversity. Historically, going back in time, prior to those kind of modern forces, you also have a quite different mechanism, which is the mechanism of what's called a spread zone. So a lot of what I try to pay attention to in this book is actually the effects of population movements prior to the colonial period and prior to what people often think of when they think of history in this part of the world. And, and those were times that involved major movements of populations. So for example, the Thai language that's spoken today and, or the Lao language is spoken in Laos today, these languages are descended from languages that came with people who migrated from China 
or areas that are now you know in the country we call China. And when those languages spread, they spread pretty quickly. And what that means is that a rather large area of the surface of the earth gets populated in a rather short time. And that creates a certain homogeneity of the languages. By contrast, if you go up into the hilltops of the Zomia area that we were just discussing, there you have groups who haven't been spreading across the land for a very long time. And so you get a lot more time to create diversification among the languages. So the answer to your question is that these forces are both kind of ancient and modern that lead to a much more kind of leveled linguistic landscape in the the lowlands. And in fact, I mean, this is a geographical story because the spread of the Thai speakers was heavily driven by the search for flat land on which to conduct paddy rice farming, which was really driving those migration expansions. So it's quite a complex kind of story that involves history and it involves livelihoods. And much more recently, it involves nation state politics. Hmm. That leads me to two more questions, one of which is about the inclusion of areas outside of what we think of as Southeast Asia. Uh, your explanation of the spread of the Dai languages, I think, helps us understand why southern China is part of the story. But another area you include is northeast India. What's the link there, Nick? Well, in discussions of what we call aerial linguistics, there are always these kind of territorial discussions, you know, where do we draw the line around the area that we're going to call, let's say, mainland Southeast Asia? And at a certain point, you have to make a decision, what am I going to include in the in the area that I'm talking about? And, and what am I going to put outside of that line? At the beginning of the book, I talk about a distinction between core mainland Southeast Asia and greater mainland Southeast Asia. So areas like southern China and northeast India, I include in greater mainland Southeast Asia, but not in core mainland Southeast Asia. And the reason is that those areas really fit in many ways with the mainland Southeast Asia area in terms of the kinds of languages that are spoken there, the kinds of history that is shared with the core of the mainland area. The decision to include them is really driven by an evaluation of the area that really tries to ignore modern political boundaries. So questions like, why do you include this section of India in this area that's Southeast Asia? I mean, isn't that part of South Asia? Well, that question kind of prioritizes the kind of nation state borders of the nation that we now call India. And the question is, well, you know, why is what we call Northeast India included in India? Well, that's a a historical political story. And in fact, if you look at that area linguistically, it doesn't really fit with South Asia as we know it. In fact, you know, it's much more similar ethno-linguistically to the mainland Southeast Asia area. So what I try to do in my vision of mainland Southeast Asia is not think about those modern political boundaries because in the context of the area, they're really very, very recent. So those are the reasons why I include places like Southern China and Northeast India. But I also would point out that I I do treat them as being on the border in a sense between the core and the, uh, the periphery of the area. And in answering that, you've pointed to my second question, which is about the politicization of language labels. Can you give us some more examples of the ways in which language has been politicized in the region? The probably most 
important way in which language is politicized is in very new dynamics of nation-state politics. So languages like Laos, Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam, Malaysia, Myanmar, China, you know, all of them have paid very close attention to the power of language in nation-state building. And that power is the power to unify people who would otherwise be not unified. So you go to a country like Laos, you've got, I don't know, anywhere between 80 and 100 and something language groups. And in principle, they could all identify completely separately as ethno-linguistic groups. So if you're trying to keep a nation state together, you know, one of the things you have to do is to highlight the unity that all these people share and downplay the differences between them. And and one of the most powerful kind of indicators of similarity or difference between people is, of course, the language that they speak. So what you find then is these nation state projects by which governments will really push through the education system, through the media, as I was mentioning before. They'll push their standard language. They will try to ensure that kids are growing up speaking that language and people are very motivated to learn nation state languages because of the benefits of knowing them well. But at the same time, from a government's point of view, there are important political reasons to promote a nation state language as a lingua franca and and so forth. This, of course, has a, a dark side. Pushing one language tends to imply that therefore you're pushing down other languages. You know, when a, when a community begins to use a national standard language, it's often associated with stopping using another language, like an ancestral language or a home language. That's not necessarily the case because, of course, you have multilingualism and that's widespread in the area. But that is a one very important kind of political dynamic in this part of the world. This type of a modern kind of nation-state-driven political dynamic, that's what anybody would first think of when they think about politics and language in a place like mainland Southeast Asia. But there are other dynamics that are found at a kind of lower level in a sense. When I say lower level, I mean smaller scale and also at a level that is not really aligned with nation-state politics. So in my own work in the uplands of Laos, I work in multilingual areas where people speak not only the nation-state languages like Lao or Vietnamese, but also multiple ethnic languages of the kind of Zomian groups of the area. And you find there that these political asymmetries between groups are also found at these smaller levels. So you'll find that if you go into some a valley where three different languages are spoken, one of those languages will tend to be associated with a group who is more powerful or somehow kind of more dominant or let's say better connected than another group and that will often mean that the less powerful group will need to learn how to also speak the language of the more powerful group so these political differences are in those type of situations they're not associated with media they're not associated with you know military power and things like that but they still are associated with politics at a lower level and those things can be found through ethnographic observation as they have been done for years particularly by anthropologists So this raises the question of endangerment of languages, which, as we know, is a pressing concern in many areas of the world. How serious is the risk of endangerment in Southeast Asia? Which languages are likely to become extinct? And does it matter? Yeah, these are great questions. It's quite an interesting set of positions that you see being taken around these. So firstly, just to answer the first part of your question, 
is there language endangerment in this part of the world? Well, that's clear. There certainly is. It's a place where there are hundreds of languages spoken. The dominant languages are spoken by millions upon millions of people, but there are also hundreds of languages that are spoken only in a few villages. So it doesn't take very long at all for a small language that's spoken by a few hundred people to be lost simply through demographic processes of people deciding to no longer speak that language because of the kinds of dynamics that I've just been describing, that by speaking the nation-state language, you are able to access certain benefits of development and so forth. So micro-level decisions being made by people to kind of shift from one language to another are certainly leading to the loss of languages in this part of the world. Having said that, there's plenty of languages that are spoken by thousands of people and they're certainly not going to disappear tomorrow. But I think the received view is that there are very strong forces going in the direction of reducing the numbers of languages spoken in the area. Now, as to your question about whether it matters or not, you know, you have very strong views on different sides of this question. One view is how can you even ask that question? Of course it matters. You know, this is really crucial part of the cultural heritage of humanity. These languages have been developed and they've evolved in the context of unique communities through time. And, you know, they're the product of human knowledge and human values. And so anybody who gets into a language, whether you're learning a big language or a small language, these are clearly facts. I mean, languages are incredibly rich in the knowledge that they encode and and the kinds of meanings that they bring to people's lives. But the question of whether that matters or not for them to be lost, I think probably everyone would agree there's a certain sense of sadness around whether languages get lost. But there's an important kind of counter-argument to the idea that you mustn't let languages go. And that is that the fact that languages go is a choice of the people who speak them. And again, this raises another set of very thorny issues. So one position is to say, look, I describe languages, I work with communities, I do not assume that I know what's better for a person uh, or what's better for a community that I'm not a member of. But if they are deciding to shift from one language to another for certain reasons that have to do with their family, their livelihoods, who am I to say that that's a bad thing? So that's certainly one strong view that says, look, I defer to the agency of the people who are you know, making choices in their own lives. A response to that says, well, you know, you might say that about individual choices, but these big forces are, are systemic forces that are arising out of political inequalities and so forth. So there's an important sense in which this is not really a kind of an agency of choice. That second response kind of says, well, you have to deal with language loss as a political matter to say, look, it's not just about the fact that some cultural heritage is being lost. It's an index of something much more fundamental, and that is that people's worlds are being blown away in the winds of something much more powerful, which is the forces of globalization and so forth. So those second set of forces, you're not going to fix them by trying to address language endangerment directly. The position that's typically taken there is to say, well, you know, you've really got to deal with the political marginalization of the people who are involved in these processes. So it really is a much bigger question than about languages themselves. But I do want to turn to the languages themselves. Um, many of our listeners will not be experts in more than one of the languages of the region. So I just want to ask you a few technical questions about them, starting with tonality. 
most of the languages are tonal languages in mainland Southeast Asia. Is that correct? Not really. So this is a bit of a, be a bit strong to say that it's a myth, but certainly it's an assumption that people tend to make that, you know, you talk about languages and you learn that there are different ways that languages can structure their sound systems and there's tonal languages and classic examples are, you know, Vietnamese and Thai and varieties of Chinese. So people will typically assume that, yeah, Southeast Asia is a place of tone languages. And that's certainly what I thought. And it's certainly accurate to say that most people who live in mainland Southeast Asia speak a tone language. But that's really because, you know, you've got 90 million something people in Vietnam who speak Vietnamese and you've got, I don't know, 70 something million in Thailand speaking Thai. But the reality is that once you ignore the number of speakers that each language has and you just ask for every language, is this a tone language? Most Austroasiatic languages, the language family from which the largest number of languages come in core mainland Southeast Asia, those languages tend not to be tone languages at all. So Vietnamese is a bit of an outlier. It is an Austroasiatic language, but it's been heavily under the influence of Chinese for a thousand years or more. And it's become a tone language over time and some other Austroasiatic languages have. But there are, in fact, many, many dozens of Austroasiatic languages that are not tone languages at all. So I don't know off the top of my head kind of the figure, but you know, I'd say you'd have at least half of the languages of mainland Southeast Asia that aren't tone languages as such. Hmm, that's really interesting, especially given that you're saying that those languages originated in China or what is now China. Some of the languages I'm familiar with in island Southeast Asia have different registers with really different vocabularies. Is that the case for any of the languages of mainland Southeast Asia? Yeah, it is a bit. So in Thailand, there is a very widely used royal vocabulary. And when I say widely used, I mean widely used in the media in particular. So in Thailand, there's a lot of media attention around the royal family. And when reporting happens in news reports on those, you know, there's a lot of so-called royal register, which means in this case, special vocabulary, you know, so you have a, a normal word for go or walk or eat or part of a person's body. And then you'll have special words that refer to those same things, but when you're speaking about a royal person. So this phenomenon certainly is found in those kinds of very prominent instances, but it's really not that widespread. So you don't find that kind of special registers of that type among the minority languages of the hills. But having said that, I should point out that that doesn't mean that there aren't rules around polite language and, and this type of thing. So to give you an example, I've been working on a language called Cree, which is Austroasiatic language spoken in, in Laos by a few hundred people. And in that language, you know, there's no royal vocabulary or, or royal personages of, of that type. But there are very important rules around kinship relations. So there is quite a lot of linguistic signaling of respect and avoidance in kinship relations. So, you know, if you're a man, you're talking to your daughter-in-law, you won't use the normal pronoun for you. Uh, you'll use a special pronoun, which in fact means the two of you. So even if you're speaking to just one person, uh, you'll use a special kind of marked form, which treats the, uh, the in-law as a double person. That's the kind of thing that's actually very widespread. 
is certain forms of avoidance also with people's names for example so oftentimes even just in Lao for example you will stop using a person's name after they've had their first child and instead of referring to them by their own personal name you'll begin referring to them by their child's name now not everyone does that that's something that people in a certain relation to you will do and so in that sense these types of linguistic practices are related to those kind of register considerations because they show a form of politeness, they show a form of respect for the local conventions for who's who and and how each person relates to each other person. Mm. That's quite different from, say, the class-based vocabulary sets you find in Javanese, for example. Yeah, absolutely. It is. Yeah. So you don't find those kinds of thoroughgoing register differences where, you know, you've got a whole sort of alternative vocabulary for everyday objects and everyday actions and things of that kind. So that's quite rare in mainland Southeast Asia. Mm, It's really interesting. I would never have imagined that particular connection. But I'd like to step back now and discuss for more of the theoretical and methodological questions that struck me as I read the book. And the first is a very basic one, but for non-linguists, what does a linguist actually do when they go to the field? Well, there are many kinds of linguists, uh, and different ones do different things, I suppose. So a language requires a lot of different approaches if you're going to understand the entire thing. So let me just take the question, you know, to be for the kind of linguist who would go to the field to describe a language that hasn't been described before. So just let me tell you from my own personal work, I'm working on this language called Cree, which I mentioned. It's spoken by several hundred people in upland Laos, and it hasn't been described before. So it hasn't been written down. It hasn't been analyzed. It hasn't been recorded. And my goal has been to document it and analyze it. And so what that requires is going to the field, working together with members of the community, firstly, to learn the language. So as an analyst, you know, one has to learn the language, learn to be able to speak it. And the fastest way to do that, the most effective way to do that is uh, to immerse yourself in it and to make recordings of the language and work with speakers to understand what people are saying in those recordings. So in my case, I've spent a lot of time living in villages there spending time with families, recording people on video, telling narratives or simply having conversations or doing practical things, and then spending time sitting with people, playing back these recordings quite painstakingly. So it means sitting down on someone's veranda for hours at a time, sort of slowly working your way through a recording. The real key to the work is working together with people to learn the ins and outs of the language. And so that involves listening carefully to the sounds of the language, analyzing the sound system and building a set of evidence for what that sound system is. And that enables you to write the language down in a systematic way. And then once you're able to do that, well, then you can start to record texts. So, you know, if you have a recording of someone telling a narrative, having a conversation, you can write the whole thing out word for word and then work together with people to figure out, okay, what's that word mean? What does it mean in this context? And that, in turn, allows you to build a word list or ultimately, hopefully, a dictionary that has got significant amount of information about the language. And over time, that's how the process works. And hopefully, at the end of it, you've got a a rich description of the language, which includes the technical facts about how the language is structured. These are things that are interesting to linguists. But more generally, 
you will have a cultural record of what that language is like, the kinds of things people talk about, the kinds of knowledge that's encoded in the language and so on. So to answer your question, what a linguist does in the field, it really involves a large amount of good old-fashioned participant observation, like really just hanging out with people and speaking their language and constantly being there with your notebook, noting down things you observe. But then secondly, putting aside a lot of time to work with native speakers to work over those recordings and notes. Sometimes for years and years, people will work on a language before they are satisfied that they've got a, a kind of a respectable description of it. So that's an answer to your question in terms of what a grammarian would do in the field. Other linguists might take a more, let's say, surgical approach. So I might be working in that area and a colleague might be particularly interested in the kind of sound system that, let's say, Cree has. So that person might come in to the area to run an experiment, for example, and uh, they could do that in a quite a short time as long as they had someone to help facilitate it. So that would be one approach. And I think a lot of linguists would agree that describing a language that hasn't previously been described is not only really important as a linguist's task, but also one of the kind of most rewarding things that a linguist can do. So you've talked a lot about how you collect language samples, how you sit with people to understand them and analyse them, but you also talk in the book about the importance of non-linguistic data. Can you tell us a bit about what role non-linguistic data plays in your research? Well, nowadays, a lot of people record on video and that's a pretty new thing. So my very first few years, I did audio-only recordings and at that time and prior to that time, there wasn't a lot of choice because if you wanted to go to you know, a remote place and or really just anywhere and take video recordings, well, video recording gear was much heavier. It was not great quality. It was unwieldy and you had to do everything using cassettes and all that kind of thing. But in my experience at the tail end of that period of audio-only recording, it was deeply unsatisfying. So you make a recording of somebody telling a narrative, for example, and then you sit down and you listen to it and you only have the audio. Well, you're not going to get very far before you get frustrated. The person will make some reference and you can hear, you know, that, for example, they're gesturing. They're making a gesture with their hands or they're, they're using a certain facial expression or they're pointing at something. And you've got an audio only recording. You can't see what they're talking about. I was lucky enough in my postdoc period to work in a lab in the Netherlands where there was a, a lot of gesture researchers and I got heavily involved in working together with them and, and I was only able to do that because as soon as I possibly could I took video cameras to the field and that experience showed me that if you have audio only recordings you're just missing a lot of absolutely fundamental data so it's not just that it's interesting extra material but things like gestures facial expressions really are an, an integral part of what people are actually saying that's one really crucial sense in which non-linguistic data are really needed so partly they help you to disambiguate a bit of language that you've captured but also they might actually allow you to capture something that's fundamentally linguistic now I should probably mention that, of course, just because something's visual doesn't mean it's not linguistic. And while most languages of this part of the world are spoken languages, there are, of course, sign languages of the deaf. So one of the things I did in the book was talk a bit about those as well. So I give a review as far as that's possible. 
not that much is known, but a certain amount is known. I also give a review of some of the sign languages that are known about in the area. So for those, those data are, of course, 100% linguistic, but they are also 100% visual. So those are some of the reasons why visual recording is really fundamental if you want to understand language. Now, speaking about fundamentally understanding language, a term that you invoke in the book is language ontology. What does this mean? And in particular, in what sense are languages ontologically subjective? So this is somewhat of a theoretical point, as you implied. It's important, though. So one of the things that we learn about in first-year linguistics is that the idea of a language, like, say, Thai or Lao or Khmer, whatever the language may be, this is, in a certain extent, an imagined entity. In a sense, it's a label we put on something that if you want to go and actually point to it, you can't define exactly what is included in the English language and what is not, you know, what's exactly included in the Thai language and what is not. So there's this question about the ontology of language, and ontology refers to simply what exists in a system and what doesn't. So the ontology is what is actually the real material of, of a system that you're trying to understand. So there's, there's deep questions about whether we can even identify languages in a, an empirical sense. And in a sense, I want to put that question aside. You know, you simply couldn't write a book like this one without making some working assumptions. And one of the important working assumptions is that there are languages and people speak them. And the most important evidence for that is that people who speak different languages don't understand each other. And people who speak the same language do understand each other. So there's something very importantly real about languages. But the question is, what is the nature of that reality? So in the section of the book where I talk about, you know, language ontology, I, I draw on a distinction that's made by a philosopher by the name of John Searle, and he's interested in social reality. Social reality is distinct from what he would call brute reality. So just to give you an, a sort of a non-linguistic example, if I have a bar of gold, there's a certain brute reality to it, right? It has a certain weight, it hurts my toe if I drop it on my toe. You know, there's certain just sort of brute facts about this object. But there are also social facts about the object. And, and one of those would be, for example, what people will exchange for it, how much money it's worth, or who owns it. So the question of who owns the bar of gold, you can't determine that by inspecting a physical piece of gold, right? That's not a brute physical fact. It's a social fact. It's a fact that is what he would call ontologically subjective, right? So the ontologically objective fact about the gold is that it weighs a certain amount or it hurts my toe if I drop it on my toe. But the subjective part is subjective because it's the fact that I own it is created by human agreement. It's not created by some physical fact. And language is like that. Language is ontologically subjective because the facts about language, so for example, in Thai, the word ma means dog, okay? So that fact, there's nothing in the sound of the word that means that it has to mean dog. It could mean anything. But that community happens to take the stance towards that sound that it refers to that entity in the world. And that's what's called something ontologically subjective. Now, what's crucial is that that doesn't mean that language is entirely subjective and nobody can make authoritative statements about it, because there's another distinction, which is epistemic subjectivity and epistemic objectivity, and that simply refers to what kind of knowledge we can have about a system. 
So our language is ontologically subjective in the way I've just explained, but it's epistemically objective, which means that in terms of knowledge about a language, it's not subjective that ma means dog in Thai. That's an objective fact. You can show it by the way that people behave when they use the language. So you can still make objective factual statements about a language without losing the insight that languages are actually created by the shared beliefs of the communities who speak them. That's a really great place, I think, to wrap up our discussion. But just before we do, I wanted to turn to the ambitious agenda that you lay out in relation to future work on the languages of the region. What do you say is required and how optimistic are you that it'll get done? Well, I spent a long time working on this book, as I've mentioned, and in it, you know, I give thousands of examples from more than 100 languages and I draw on hundreds of references from decades of work by people. So there's this incredible richness of resources of research on the kind of technical facts about the languages. And we haven't discussed these here because they really are quite technical. But apart from the kind of historical contextual questions at the beginning of the book, most of the book is about the kind of technical linguistic facts, you know, nouns and verbs and (laughs) systems and structures of the sounds and the syntax of the languages and so forth. And, you know, I'm happy with the ground that's been covered in that. There's, of course, plenty more work to be done and there's a lot more to learn about the technical structures of the languages. But where I think there's a lot more work to be done is I dream of a kind of companion volume to this one which covers the same sort of ground and goes to the same sort of depth not in the technical grammatical side of these languages but in the social cultural side of these languages so a survey that really pulls together everything that's known about things like politeness in language the cultural knowledge that's captured in language all of these kinds of issues that have to do with how language functions in society you know, naming practices, you name it. There's a long list of ways in which language is important and functions in social groups beyond just the kind of technical structures. And so I think that that's the next frontier is, I mean, there's a lot of wonderful work on this in the different languages, but bringing it all together in a kind of survey of the area is the big next step. And that's what I'd love to see done. I'm not sure if I'm the one who's going to do it, but you know, I think it'd be fantastic to see it done. Sounds like a fantastic project for someone else, if not you. Nick Enfield, thanks for joining us on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss the languages of mainland Southeast Asia. Thanks very much for having me. You've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This is one of the hundreds of conversations about Southeast Asia-related books on the channel. You can download or stream these interviews free of charge from the New Books Network website or subscribe through your favourite podcast app.